Well, good morning. It's great to see everybody today. My name's Elliot, and we are going to be talking about this movie, Finding Dory. This movie's already set some records at the box office this summer for an animated film, and a lot of people are going to see this. Um, I'll admit, I really enjoyed this movie. I thought it was um, pretty entertaining. There were a few of the characters that um, they developed the characters and brought the quirkiness of these little sea creatures to life and animated them. I thought it was really um, clever and creative. And there was one character in particular, um, this is a little prediction, and so you guys can disagree with me afterwards or not, but I think that Hank the Octopus, if you've seen the movie, you can comment on this after, but I think he's going to have his own movie before too long. In my opinion, he pretty much stole the show. In this one, but the reason we're here and we're talking about this movie is not to talk about the characters that we liked or disliked or the character development or cinematography, the directing, whatever. The reason we're looking at these movies over the summer is we're trying to identify what are the messages that they send to us about how we are to live our lives. Because they're creative stories and they're fun and we go and we watch them, but they also send really powerful messages about how we can approach our lives. And this movie in particular, I was pretty surprised by this, but one of the main messages in this movie is how do you make decisions? And in the story of the movie, I'll give you a little bit of the story. The story is that Dory is, as a small um, little fish, she has short-term memory loss. And so her parents are trying to give her kind of these simple things to remember so that she can know where she's from. But what happens is, is she gets lost. And then because she's lost and she can't remember where her home is, she's swimming through the ocean. And there are these really kind of gut-wrenching scenes where you have this really cute little fish with this adorable little voice swimming up other, to other fish saying, Hi, I'm Dory. I lost my family. Can you help me? And these scenes just keep going on and on. And like I was surprised how kind of sad parts of the movie were. I mean, there were some kids in front of me that just started bawling. And their mom had to like, you know, calm them down and assure them. I mean, it does have a happy ending, so I'm not saying it's all sad. But it was really gut-wrenching to watch this little fish go through this. And then she, as she grows into adolescence and even into being an adult, she forgets about her family. She's been searching, but then kind of as time passes, she forgets about this family. Until one day, she has a memory. And when she has this memory, she realizes there's a family out there, somebody that loves me. And that's really in the movie where the decision-making starts to happen. Because up until that point, they've just kind of been hanging out on the reef. And then when she has that memory, now it's okay. We've got we've to go somewhere and do something. So from that point on, all these little sea creatures, they encounter challenges, they come across crossroads, they face obstacles, and they have to make decisions throughout the movie. And all along the way, there are all these different processes and approaches to decision-making that are presented to us. Some of the ones that are presented is Dory's mom says to her, you can do anything you set your mind to. Kind of the idea is, is if, you, if you want it bad enough, the, the right outcome will happen. So she's just saying, hey, if, you, if your desire is strong enough, then you're going to get the outcome that you want. Some of the other approaches in the movie, um, some of them are circumstances-based. Some of them are Whatever seems right in the moment is what you should do. One of the characters actually says something about this and says, why have plans? I never have plans. The idea is, is whatever seems right in the moment, you act on it. Another um, thing that a character says in regard to circumstances-based decision-making is do the first thing you see and don't think twice. And that's what you see the characters doing. They're not only saying this, but then when they're encountering these challenges, their, their actions are lining up with how they think you go about making the best decision. Then there are parts of the movie where the characters realize that they're, 
no pun intended, but they're in over their head in water. And so because of that, because they're in too deep, they don't know what to do. So they have to go to others. They have to rely on others. There are scenes where they start to ask questions. Well, what would this other character do in this situation? Because I don't know what to do, so what would they do? And then, actually, there's a really good example in the movie about the need for input from others. And constantly, Dory in particular, because she doesn't know where she's going and doesn't know how to get there, she's constantly receiving input from other characters who have more information, more experience, more knowledge than her to guide her along the way. But this theme of decision-making is, is very, very strong in the movie. And it, it, like I said, it sends a very powerful message about how we can make the decisions in our lives. The tricky thing is, is in a movie, you can have a character who makes unwise decision after unwise decision, but then the director and the animator, they can kind of suspend reality to make sure that everything works out for the benefit of that character. But for us in our lives, it doesn't work like that. If we make unwise decision after unwise decision, we live in a real world with real consequences to those decisions. So we need to make sure that the decisions that we make aren't just flippant and we don't think about them, but that we're actually trying to figure out what is the wise decision to make in this situation. Because like I said, the decisions we make have real consequences attached to them. And we need to be careful that we're making wise, good decisions. There's no animator that just come in and say, okay, well, You've made 10 stupid decisions in a row, but here, I'll just make it where, poof, all of a sudden it's going to work out in your favor. There's actually a verse on this, Galatians 6, 7, and 8. That's what the verse says. It says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Now, what this verse is saying is that God has created this world with cause and effect. What that means is for our actions, when we make a decision and then we act on it, there are effects attached to that. There was a cause and now there's going to be a result. But those results are not random, they're actually specific. So specific actions are attached to specific results, just like this passage says. So if you sow to please the Spirit, if you do life in line with the way that God's instructed us to, if He is the basis for your decision-making, you're going to experience a very different kind of life if you take the other road, which is, I'm not going to take into consideration what God says. I'm just going to do what seems right in the moment and what seems right to me, like it says here, he who sows to, flee, to please the flesh. So there are specific outcomes attached to the decisions that we make, and we need to make sure that we are making wise decisions. In this passage, one of the ideas that's really fascinating to me is the use of the word destruction here. This word destruction, when it says, if you sow to please the flesh, you'll reap destruction. The word destruction here in the Greek is used to describe milk that has gone sour, something that was good and is now bad. And so that's the idea, is there's a process in place, and if we keep making unwise decision after unwise decision, then we can take a life that's good, and we can make it bad. We can make it sour. We can in a sense, ruin our own lives with unwise decision-making. So our decisions are incredibly important, and we need to pay attention to the decisions we're making. And, and I'll admit this for me. Sometimes, as a Christian, we can get this idea that our decisions aren't really important because God saved us, and because we're Christians, then kind of what God does to our lives is when we make decisions, He's kind of got this divine pixie dust, and he just kind of sprinkles it over our decisions. 
And then we make all these unwise decisions, but it just kind of works itself out because God loves us and everything's just going to happen the way that it was supposed to happen. But what God's saying in this passage is, no, if, if you make unwise decisions, it doesn't mean that I don't love you, but you can bring very real and very painful consequences into your life. And so what God's going to do is he's going to use those consequences, those walls that we keep running into to help us start to choose to do the right thing. See, if every time we made an unwise decision, God just came along with the pixie dust and sprinkled it over the decision and suddenly it all just worked out perfectly, well, we would never learn. We would just keep doing the same dumb thing over and over and over again. So God's created a world where there are consequences to our decisions. And sometimes those consequences hurt really, really bad. Sometimes we don't experience those consequences for years. But we need to make sure that we're making decisions that are wise decisions, decisions in line with the way that he's instructed for us to live. So we need a process in place if we're going to make wise decisions. There is a process for decision making. It was um, presented to me um, a few years ago, and it really kind of walks through, hey, if you're going to make a wise decision, here's something you can do in line with God's word. And it works similar to how a train functions. With a train, you have all these various different cars, and each car has a separate function. And in the right order, those cars can take that train and cover a great distance. But if you get the order messed up, or if you leave out some of the cars of that train, that train's not going to function properly. Similar to our decision-making process, when it comes to making a wise decision, there's a process we can go through. And when we go through this process, our chances of making a wise decision are greatly increased. But if we leave out steps, or if we neglect to do certain things, or even if we get it in the wrong order, then instead of making a wise decision, we are going to make unwise decisions. And because we live in a world that has consequences, a world of cause and effect, we need to take our decisions very seriously and make sure we're making wise decisions. So in a train, the first car in a train is the engine. When it comes to our decision-making process, the first part of making a wise decision is prayer. Prayer is the first thing. This is what it says in James 1, verse 5. It says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Now, I don't know what the decisions are that you're facing, but I do know what this verse says. It says, that you should ask God who gives generously without finding fault. Ask God for wisdom. So in your situation, you might have a lot of information. You might have a good idea about what's going to happen. But I guarantee God knows more. God can see what's coming around the curve up ahead. He has more information. He has more wisdom in the situation. So if we just go it alone and don't ask him, then our chance of making a wise decision are greatly decreased. So we need to go to God and start with just saying, God, this is the decision I'm facing. I need wisdom in the situation. The cool thing about this verse, I think, is there's actually a promise. The promise is it will be given to you. So you start with prayer and you go to him and you say, God, this is the decision I'm facing. Would you give me wisdom in this decision? Now, one important thing for us to remember here in this decision-making process, when we go to God in prayer, we're making a request. We are not customers placing an order. If I go to a restaurant this afternoon and I place an order for a meal, I expect to get what I asked for because I'm a paying customer. But with God, I am not a paying customer. I'm more like a child who's coming before my good and loving father and saying, okay, this is the decision that I'm facing. I need something. I'm requesting something. But I'm realizing that because of who he is and because of who I am, he knows more. So he might actually give me exactly what I've asked for. He might give me something different that I had never thought of. 
he might wait and delay the answer because he knows that that's what's better for me. So when we go to him with our requests, we need to remember this is a request that I'm making. I'm not a customer who's placing an order. I can't just simply because I've asked him expect I'm going to get exactly what I've asked for in this situation. God, he is good and loving, and he knows better than us. So when we go to him, we need to remember we're making requests. The next car on a train is the coal car. It starts with the engine. The engine gets everything going. But then the second car is the coal car. It's what fuels the engine and keeps the train moving forward. Without the coal car, the engine isn't going to have any fuel. It is essentially, eventually, it's going to run out. So for us, in decision-making, after we start in prayer, the next step is to see what the Bible says. So the coal car in decision-making is the Bible. If our decision-making is limited to prayer, then we're really not going to get anywhere. We need God's word to keep us on track, to keep informing us what to pray for, how to pray, help us determine, is this God actually answering a prayer in a situation? We need to keep going back to the Bible and seeing what it says. And there's really two habits that help us practice this, putting the Bible in this specific situation. The the first habit is to look at what the Bible says about the decision I'm facing. Are there verses about the situation that I'm facing? What does the Bible say about this? Sometimes the Bible is really clear. The Bible says, yes, do this, or the Bible says, no, don't do that. We need to be aware of what are the things that the Bible says. How does it speak to my situation? I mean, for example, um, when I was dating my wife before we got married, one of the things that I don't need to pray for is should I have sex with her or not. The Bible's already made it perfectly clear. Sex outside of marriage is off limits. So I don't need to pray about that because God's already said He's spoken clearly in his word, yes, do this, or no, don't do that. So there are situations where God's perfectly clear on this is what I want you to do. But there are other times where, given the situation, God might be saying, okay, here's a list of priorities. Here's how you determine how you're supposed to act. This is the top thing on the list, and then it goes down. Or it might give guidelines and say, okay, based on the situation that you're facing, here are some things to consider. But the Bible does speak to our decisions, and so we need to go and look What does it say specifically about what I'm facing? One of the challenges to doing this is this takes work. It takes time out of our schedule to sit down and figure out what does God say about this situation. And I'll admit for me, oftentimes what I am is I can be a lazy decision maker. And so instead of seeing, well, what does the Bible actually say about this decision? I'll just kind of, I'll I'll assume or I'll just kind of jump to some conclusion. Well, Well, God would probably want me to do this. And then in the short term, I think, well, that works out in my favor because I have more time. I didn't have to spend all this time seeing what the Bible says. And then usually I end up doing what I want to do if I'm a lazy decision maker. But then in the long run, what I've realized is it actually takes a lot more time because then I've got to go and I've got to clean up the mess that I've made because I've made an unwise decision. And so if we're going to make wise decisions, we need to be going to God's word and saying specifically, what does this say about the decision that I'm making? But another part of the Bible being this car on the train is we need to have a regular time in God's Word. See, sometimes when we dive in and we say, okay, what does the Bible say about this decision? The Bible will speak clearly. Other times, God will use our regular practice of being in His Word to give us direction. One of the decisions my wife and I are facing where God spoke to me pretty clearly on this has to do with um, getting a new vehicle. We are, some of you guys know, but we are expecting our second child in about two months. Yeah, we're really excited. It's a little boy, so we'll have one of each. But we're expecting our second child. He arrives in two months, and so it's getting closer and closer, and we realize 
well, we need a bigger vehicle to accommodate the car seats and strollers and everything else. So we're starting to look, okay, what would be a good vehicle for our family? And there's a verse that God used to really speak to me on this decision. It's an interesting um, verse, and this is what it says, Philippians 2, 3. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Now, what in the world does that have to do with buying a car? It doesn't say get the Toyota over the Honda. It doesn't say buy new or buy used. It doesn't say anything about making payments or paying cash. So what in the world does this verse have to do with getting a car? Well, this is what God prompted me with when I read this verse. First of all, he prompted me by starting to question my motivation. Is there any vanity in my decision-making? Because I'll admit, the cars I was looking at, I was looking brand new, top of the line, all the bells and whistles. That's what I was looking at. Well, so God used this to get me to start asking the question, well, Elliot, is that really what your family needs? Is that the best use of the money that you have? Are you doing that because of how that will make you feel or how you might look in other people's eyes? Or are you doing that because that's really a wise decision? So he, he caused me to start asking my vanity, questioning my vanity, even the model of car I was looking at. Again, like, are you looking at what's best for your family? Or are you just looking at what makes you look good or makes you feel good? And then another thing in this verse that he used is when it talks about selfishness. In the car buying decision, and I'm, am I just being selfish? Am I just thinking about what I want in the car? Or am I really listening to and considering what my wife wants in the car and what her needs and her concerns are with the car? Or am I just looking at the cars that meet my desires? And so, again, like, even though this verse might seem disconnected, it's in that regular time in God's word where we're facing a decision, we're praying to him, we're already trying to figure out what does God say about this decision. Then he can use passages like this to help shape our prayer, to help say, okay, I, I think you need to start praying about this, or this might be something you haven't thought of in your motivation, and so you need to start looking for maybe a car over here. This verse has changed what I'm looking for and what I'm praying about. Seems disconnected. But it's in the regular reading of God's word where God will speak clearly to us and help us move forward in making a wise decision. The next car in the train is the passenger car. The passenger car is where we receive counsel. This is where the people are. This is where we go to other people and we get input. There's a verse on this in Proverbs 15:20. This is what it says. It says, plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors... They succeed. Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. There's actually a lot of examples in the movie, a lot of good examples where this is done. There's one example in particular where Dory, she is trapped in a bunch of tunnels. And she's trapped in there. It's kind of a maze, and she doesn't know how to get out. And there's uh, one of the characters in the movie. His name is Bailey. He's a beluga whale. He has this thing called echolocation where he can make sound and then the sound waves bounce back off objects and he can figure out what's going on and where stuff's at. And so she relies on Bailey to guide her out of this tunnel because she can't see what's going on. And so there's a lot of good examples in the movie where characters rely on others for counsel and input in making their decisions. Same thing for us. We need other people to speak into our lives to help us make wise decisions. The challenge for us, though, is we need to be careful who we're asking. One of the things that we need to do is we need to go to wise people. We need to go to people that are wiser than us, who know more, who are walking with God, who can speak into our lives. A verse on this is Proverbs 10:17. It says, Whoever heeds discipline shows the way to life, but whoever ignores correction leads others astray. Notice how it says, Whoever heeds discipline shows the way to life. If I get input from somebody, I want it to be somebody who can show the way to life. I don't want it to be somebody who's going to lead me astray. 
So who's the type of person that can show the way to life? Somebody who themselves is receiving input and living based on the correction of God's word. Not somebody who's just off in isolation doing whatever they want to do. It's saying that that person, that person that's off in isolation, somebody who ignores correction, what they're doing is they're leading others astray. So I need to make sure that if I'm getting input, I'm going to wise people who can, just like it says here, show the way to life. But then another thing that we need to do is we need to make sure that we're teachable. A few verses on this, on being teachable and getting advice. Proverbs 19.20 says, Listen to advice and accept discipline, and at the end you will be counted among the wise. So if, if you make it a habit of your life to listen to what others have to say and then accept discipline, actually change what you're doing to more align with what God has to say, saying at the end you'll be counted among the wise. You'll be a wise person. Another verse on this, Isaiah 5.21 Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. So the idea here is people who are clever in their own sight sometimes will do this in decision-making. We'll come to the conclusion that we want, that most aligns with what we want to do. So we'll decide, okay, this is the decision. Well, this is what I really want to do. So we might go get counsel, but because we're wise in our own eyes and we've already decided what the right answer is, when we get counsel from people, we're not so much asking them to give us you know, various alternatives, we're asking them to agree with what we want to do. So we're looking for people that will kind of put a stamp of approval on our actions. People that, by them agreeing with us, it justifies us doing what we've already decided on. So instead of it going into it being open and saying, okay, I'm open to what this person has to say, I'm going to be honest about this decision I'm facing, we'll go in and we might manipulate it in some way. Or we might present the facts in such a way where they are automatically going to come to the conclusion that we came to. Or we might only go to people who we know will tell us that we, what we want to hear. What it says in this verse in Isaiah is it says, woe to those people. Be careful. If you're doing that in your decision making, you might think, hey, I'm going through the train. I started with prayer. I went to God's word. Now I'm getting counsel. But if, if instead of getting counsel, you're just kind of faking it, you're fake going through the process and you're not open and teachable, well, again, what the verse says is you're not going to make wise decisions. So we need to be careful when we do that. Now, an important note at this point in the train is the order of the cars. So you have the engine up front, then you have the coal car, and then you have the passenger car. When it comes to getting counsel, we're not going to receive or act on counsel that goes against what God's word says. It's a car that's further down the train. So that means that the cars in the front are the ones that determine what we do. When it comes to the first two cars, engine, the engine and the coal car, prayer and God's word, those are constantly working together. We're praying through the entire decision-making process. We're going to God's word through the entire process. If God answers a prayer, it will be in line with what his word says. If God leads us in a direction that, or if we think he's leading us in a direction that doesn't line up with his word, we know instantly, well, because it doesn't line up with what his word says, with what the Bible says, I know that that's not God leading me. So we've got to pay attention to the order of the train and keep it in the right order. And then when it comes to the counsel, again, if we receive counsel that's not in line with what God says in his word, that's not wise, then we can know this is not something that God wants me to do. He's not going to give me counsel and speak to me that disagrees with what he's already said. So we've got to remember the order of the importance. The, the counsel is not more important than going to God's word. It starts with prayer. That's the engine and gets everything going. Then we go to the Bible and see what the Bible says. And then we go and we get input from other people who are wise and we need to remain teachable. The next car on the train is the freight car. This is circumstances. 
Now, circumstances can be pretty tricky. The reason that the freight car is circumstances is because in a train going down the tracks, I'm sure you've seen this before, sometimes there's a lot of freight on that train. Sometimes there are a lot of circumstances. Other times, there's no freight on that train. It's just the engine and the other cars moving down the track. Same thing in our decision making. Just because all the circumstances look favorable doesn't mean God is saying yes. And just because all the circumstances appear to be negative doesn't mean that God is saying no in that situation. So we've got to be careful and analyze the circumstances, but make sure that the circumstances don't go against what God has already said. See, sometimes God will use circumstances to confirm his leading. But then there's other times, there's a lot of examples in the Bible where God gives circumstances, but those circumstances are used to see if somebody's going to choose to do what is right instead of acting on what they see in the moment. One of the examples of this is in 1 Samuel chapter 13, and it has to do with King Saul. Saul is the first king of Israel, and he has recently gone to war with kind of his neighbors, the Philistines. And in this story, if you read the backstory on this, what's happened is um, when he goes to war, he goes to the prophet Samuel. And the prophet Samuel tells him, on the seventh day, I'm going to arrive, and we're going to prepare an offering and present it to God. But you need to wait for seven days until I arrive. Now, in those times, they didn't have a Bible like we do. So they couldn't just like flip to these pages and read this. So because they didn't have that, when God spoke, he spoke through his prophets. So when Samuel told Saul, wait seven days, Saul knew, okay, that's God telling me, wait seven days, and then Samuel will arrive and he'll present the offering. And then another part of the story that's important to understand is it had already been told by God that the only people who could present offerings were priests. So Saul is king. He is not a priest. He can't present an offering. He's not qualified to do that. Samuel could, but Saul couldn't. So Saul knew God had said, wait seven days. You can't present the offering. Samuel's the one that needs to do it. So what happens is in the story, he goes to battle through the course of the week. The enemy that he's up against is described as having an army as large as the sand on the seashore. So just this great numerous force that he's up against, and he's thinking, there's no way I can defeat these guys. He's got 3,000 men. So him and his men are facing this army that's much more powerful than him, and his men start to desert him throughout the week. They see this great force they're up against. They're like, there's no way we're going to win this battle. We're taking off. So they go into hiding. They're leaving him. So all week long, he's losing soldiers every day. The longer he waits... He's losing more soldiers. Those are the circumstances that he's facing. He's facing the odds of him winning are getting greater. The odds of him losing are getting greater and greater. And so it reaches the point where on the seventh day, Saul wakes up. He doesn't see Samuel, and he decides, okay, I'm going to go ahead, and I'm going to present the offering to God. This is what it says, picking the story up, 1 Samuel 13, verse 10. It says, just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived. And Saul went out to greet him. You can imagine that that is going to be an awkward conversation. What have you done, asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. So because of the circumstances, he even calls Samuel out and says, Samuel, you didn't arrive in the point of time. Well, that's not true. Samuel arrived just when he said he was going to arrive. But because of the circumstances, Saul felt compelled to just take matters into his own hands. God had been clear. God had said, wait until Samuel shows up, and you're not qualified to present the offering. But because of the circumstances, he doesn't do that. The next verses are rather sad. This is what it says, 
Verse 13, it says, You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time, but now your kingdom will not endure. So the circumstances were put in place to see if Saul would choose the right thing. It's often very similar for us. When we encounter circumstances, it might be God saying, yes, I'm using these circumstances to confirm what I've already said in my word. But it could also be that the circumstances are to see if you're going to choose what's right. So if we put the circumstances at the front of the train, chances are we're not going to make a wise decision. We have to keep them in the order that they are and make sure that what's leading is God's word and prayer, those two going together. The final car in the train is the caboose. And the caboose is emotions. The caboose on a train is rather interesting in how it works. In old times, what they would have is they would have a conductor in the caboose who would communicate information to the engineer at the front of the train based on how the train was performing going down the tracks. So as it would go around a curve, how is the freight shifting? Or what's the speed doing? How is it affecting the cargo? How are, we, how are we running this train down the tracks? Now they have sensors that do this, that send it forward on computers so that whoever's running the train knows how everything's working. That's very similar to how our emotions function. Our emotions and decision-making kind of help us know where we're at, where our movements are at in relation to God. So when we encounter an emotion, instead of just acting on that emotion, what we need to do is we need to go back and say, okay, what is this emotion saying to me? See, the emotions can't lead, but we can listen to the emotions to see what's the information that the emotion is communicating to me based on my movement. So when we feel something, when we feel anger or we feel sadness or fear or joy or whatever, we need to then kind of let that filter through our prayer and God's word. And then if we can't even figure that out, then we go and we get input from other people to figure out, okay, what is this emotion saying to me? The emotion is not the engine. It does not have the power to pull the train down the tracks. But in the right order, the emotion is incredibly valuable and can help us know how we're moving how the train is operating as we go about making our wise decisions. One of, the, one of the things in the movie that you see over and over again, and we even do it in our own lives, is the two leading cars in our decision-making are circumstances and emotions. You see this over and over in the movie. It's a, it, again, it's a fun, it's a clever movie, but again and again, the, the characters are making decisions based on, well, what is the circumstance telling me to do? What, what seems right based on what I see? Or what feels right in this moment? What's the emotion that I'm going to act on in this moment? And if we base our lives on those two cars in the train, there's no way we're going to make wise decisions because the circumstances are constantly changing and our emotions are constantly changing. We need something that's stable and can really get us moving. So we start with prayer. We go, what does God's word have to say about this? We get input from wise people. And then we analyze the circumstances and then we listen to the emotions that we're experiencing. But we make sure that the circumstances and the emotions are not what leads in this process. For me, one of the times where I... Um, kind of went through this train in a decision was on the decision of where to work a few years ago. It was a decision that I was facing. It was a new decision for me. I was a recent college graduate. I just moved out here. It was 2007, 2008. The economy had just taken a dip, as many of you remember. I couldn't get a job. My degree was in uh, journalism, and I had a focus in advertising, so I wanted to work in advertising. I applied at almost every ad agency in Orange County. Couldn't get anything because there was nobody, nobody was hiring. They were just laying off at the time. So because I couldn't get any jobs, I knew I needed to make some money and make ends meet. 
So I got a job in an after-school program. I did odd handyman jobs just to get some cash to go. And the whole time I'm praying, okay, God, give me, give me a job. Give me something that's stable, something that will provide. And then within a week, I get two job offers. One job offer is from a media company, similar to what I majored in. Another job offer is from an action sports company. I've been praying for a job. I've been actively looking for a job. I've been working in the meantime. And then, boom, here's these two jobs, and now I've got to decide between the two of them. So how did the train work for me in that decision-making process? Well, first of all, I was praying a whole lot. I was asking God, just like we looked at under prayer, I was asking God for wisdom. God, give me wisdom on which one of these two jobs is going to be the best job. And then I was going to his word and saying, okay, what does the Bible have to say? Here's a few um, verses that the Bible um, has on the topic of work that really spoke to me. The first one is Ecclesiastes 5.10. This is what it says. It says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. So what this is saying to me in terms of making the decision on work, if I base this decision on a chase for money, that's a chase that's never going to end. I'm always going to be chasing for more money. So while money is very important in the decision making, it's not the top thing. I need a job that pays the bills, but it's not the most important thing. Another verse that God used in the decision making, Colossians 3.23, this is what it says. It says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Now, there's a few ideas in this verse that helped me. First of all, as it says, you're working for the Lord. That means whatever, you, whatever your job is, once you're in that position, you need to view it as, okay, God's my boss. He's ultimately the one that I'm working for, so I need to do everything with excellence. But another part of this that really God used in my process is it says, work at it with all your heart. It's much easier to put your whole heart into something if you have a sense of this is what I was made to do. This is what I'm passionate and excited about. I mean, if you're not passionate and excited about it, you still need to give your all if it's your job. But it's much easier to give your all if you can really get behind what the company's doing. And so I had to take that into consideration in making this decision on where to work. And then another verse, Matthew 6.33, a verse having to do with our priorities. It says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. So the most important thing, seek first his kingdom. So what is... What's God's mission, and how can I be a part of that? That's number one. And then the others come after that. So those are some verses that God used in my decision-making. The counsel that I received, actually the counsel was, was interesting because the counsel was on both sides. One individual said, you need to take the media job. Somebody else said, no, you need to take the action sports job. And then some people said, well, we really don't think one job is necessarily better than the other. It's just important that you go through this process and then when you take the job that you're a faithful employee. So it wasn't really clear through the counsel that I received which job I should take. So then the circumstances that I was facing, circumstances in this job, the media job paid almost double. Now, in paying almost double, it required a lot more time. It wasn't just a full-time job. It was one of those jobs where it would be pretty easy to start working late into the evening and then for my weekend to be occupied with the work. Another thing, uh, the media job would require a decent commute. So not only was there more hours in the office, but then there was more drive time that I would have to take. And in the media job, I would have been one of the youngest people in the office. These are just some circumstances that I had to take into consideration. When it came to the action sports job, that job was actually located within a mile of where I lived at the time. It was right down the street. I could walk there in 10 minutes. I could walk there faster than I could drive to the other job. It was full-time. It paid plenty of money. But in being full-time, when you were done, you were done. You could go home. You could 
work on other stuff. You had plenty of time. It wasn't a job where, okay, on a weekend, it's going to compete for all my free time. It was a job where I could go and I could put in my 40, 45 hours and then I could go home at the end of that. Another circumstance in that job is there were a lot of people my age at that company. The media company, mainly people who are further ahead than me, but at the action sports company, a lot of people my age who lived locally. And then the emotions that I was facing. So those are some of the circumstances I had to consider. The emotions I was facing. Probably the biggest emotion was just anxiety. I had been without work for a while, and I wanted to make sure if I got a job, I got a job that was a good fit and I could stay in for a long period of time. I didn't want to be bouncing between jobs over and over and over again. So I felt this anxiety about making sure that I made a wise decision. So after kind of walking through this process, then what I ended up deciding on based on this information, I decided on the action sports job. And actually for me, the deciding factor in the action sports job goes back to what Matthew says in Matthew 6.33 where it says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And so I knew, okay, here's a job that God's kingdom is most important. This is a job that is not going to rival that. This is a job that's going to pay the bills. It's a job I can be at for a while, but at the same time, it's not going to become my life. It's not going to ask for everything that I am, and then I have nothing to give to what God's trying to do. And so that was one of the deciding factors. Another deciding factor was that verse, Colossians 3.23, where it says, whatever you do, do it with your whole heart. I knew that, okay, I'm going to be working with people my age. This is something that gets me excited. So even though it's less money, I can get in a job like this, and I can really put my whole heart into this job. And then I'm with people my age, so that's another part of seeking his kingdom first. I mean, these are people that I have a lot in common with, and I could be a part of God reaching these people. And so those were, became the top thing in my decision-making process. And looking back over eight years of, after making that decision eight years ago, I can say that was a very wise decision that I made. But if I wouldn't have gone through this process, I guarantee you other things would have been more important. I would have listened to stuff I probably shouldn't have listened to in the situation, and I might have made a different choice. But when you go through a process like this, the thing is, is God wants to give us wisdom. See, our, our decisions matter. Our decisions are not unimportant. They're incredibly important. And God wants to give us wisdom in the process. And so that means we need to use a process like this to figure out what is God saying to me? How is he leading me? I don't know what the decisions are that you're facing. I don't know if they're retirement decisions, if they have to do with work, if it's who to marry, if it's how to raise your kids. I don't know what the decisions are. But I do know that whatever your decision is, God wants to direct you. He wants to give you wisdom. And what that means is you and I, when we face these decisions, we need to go to him and we need to say, God, I need wisdom. You know more than me. You know what's going on. I need you to give me wisdom in this situation. We need to go to him and we need to ask. And then we need to spend time and we need to dive in and say, okay, what does the Bible say about this? What does the Bible say about parenting? What does the Bible say about retirement? What does the Bible say about the type of person that I should look for as a spouse? What does the Bible say about these things? And then spending regular time in his word so he can inform our prayer and direct us and maybe even speak to us really clearly through a passage that we thought was unrelated to the decisions that we're facing. And then we need to get input. We can't make these decisions in isolation. We need to go to people who are wiser than us, and we need to be open to what they have to say, not having already decided, but we need to be teachable to it. And then when it comes to the circumstances, realize that God might use these circumstances to confirm what he said, but at the same time, these circumstances might be God's way of seeing if I'm going to choose to do what's right. 
And then as we're going through this process, we're praying, we're going to see what the Bible says, we're getting input, and we're making movement. As we encounter these emotions, these emotions that are sending us signals, then we need to figure out what is this emotion telling me? Instead of just getting the emotion and then acting on it, we need to sit and say, okay, this emotion, just like the caboose on a train, is sending me a very powerful message. What is that message about my movement? How can I maybe change what I'm doing or tweak things based on this emotion that I'm receiving? If we go through this process, if we actually take something like this and apply it, the chances of us making a wise decision are greatly increased. Because again, it's not like God's just going to come along with the pixie dust and say, hey, you've made 10 stupid decisions in a row. Here, let me just make it all perfect all of a sudden. No, there are consequences that we face if we just keep deciding to do things a certain way over and over. And we need a process for making a wise decision. This is a very helpful process when it comes to making a decision, a wise decision, in line with the way that God wants us to live. Um, I've got a few next steps for you. These are at the bottom of your notes, and these kind of help you put into practice some of the things that we just talked about. I encourage you this week, identify one of the major decisions that you're facing. So if there's a major decision you're facing, identify what that is, and then use the train in that decision-making process. I would, I would even write down, I've, d- I've done this myself, I'd write down the train in the order and then start to fill it in. Okay, so what is my prayer based on this decision? And then start to fill in, what does the Bible have to say about this? And just work through the process so that you can make a wise decision. Um, if you'll join me, we'll pray, and the band will come up and we'll sing our final song. Father God, I thank you for not being a God who leaves us on our own to make decisions in darkness and in isolation, but you have given us very clear instruction on how you want us to live. Uh, You've given us the Holy Spirit who comes and lives within us when we decide to follow you, who helps us to understand the instruction that you've given us. God, you've surrounded us with other people who are walking with you and take you seriously, people who you can also speak through in giving us wisdom. And so, God, I pray that in our decision-making, we wouldn't be flippant about the decisions that we're making. We wouldn't think that the outcomes aren't that big of a deal or just think that it doesn't matter what we do, it'll all turn out a certain way. But we would realize that our actions have specific results attached to them. And those might be really good, but at the same time, they might be really bad depending on what we decide to do. And our decisions are important. And so because of that, we need to go to you and make sure that we're making wise decisions as we move forward, as we move through life. So God, I pray that we would be people who make wise decisions. Help us have clarity and understanding. Give us wisdom. Help us go through a process like this so that we can make a decision and act based on what you want us to do. In your name, amen.